The IPO window can be narrow. Be ready when it opens. Think timing is everything? Look again. Readiness is vital. Deloitte's audit and IPO readiness services can help companies prepare for IPO and exit opportunities. For example, a Deloitte audit is an opportunity for insight, one that can help leaders see further and deeper into their businesses and can help inform vital decisions. See how at Deloitte.com forward slash US forward slash EGC. That's D-E-L-O-I-T-T-E dot com forward slash U-S forward slash E-G-C. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alex Von Tobel. And this week, I'm excited for you to meet Max Lightvin, co-founder of Grammarly, the company on a mission to improve lives by improving communication. Max co-founded Grammarly in 2009, and today the company has over 30 million daily users and a valuation north of $13 billion. These users rely on Grammarly to make their messages, documents, and social media posts clear, mistake-free, and impactful. Before building Grammarly, Max co-founded My Dropbox, a plagiarism detection company, and served as the director of product strategy at Blackboard Inc. after it acquired My Dropbox. Max earned a BBA in information systems at the International Christian University in Kiev and holds an MBA from Vanderbilt University. And with that, let's welcome Max. What is Grammarly in your own words? And take us back to the origin story. Grammarly is a tool that helps people organize their knowledge, process it, and share it with others. We called ourselves communication assistant for a long time to uh, make it easier to compartmentalize uh, the product, to understand what it does. But its functionality is quite a bit broader than that. Can we go back to the early days of 2009? How did you literally stand up the company? Um, my co-founder and I, we were running plagiarism detection uh, service, and many uh, customers of uh, this uh, service uh, asked us why why our employees or our students plagiarize it so much, because everybody was surprised by the amount of plagiarism they saw. We really were not, initially, we're not concerned with the answer to the question because we would just provide the technology. Eventually, we get curious. Like If you're solving a problem, you will get curious about the origin of the problem. So we talked to people, uh, people accused of plagiarism and so on. And the common theme emerged that it's incredibly hard to take what's in your head and put it in writing and put it in writing in a way that's effective, that accomplishes the results that you want and so on. Our thinking was, well, instead of fixing the symptom or policing it, why don't we just make it easier to take what's in your head, to take your thoughts, your ideas, your knowledge and put it in writing? Why don't we just work on this barrier and kind of removing that barrier? It's going to make everybody more productive, more successful, and more satisfied with their life. That was the original idea for Grammarly. Once we had this idea, we also quickly realized that computers can do that. 2008, 2009, technology wasn't quite there. Like most spell checkers were not even contextual. So they didn't even look at the words around the word that you're trying to spell check. So we started basically building technology almost from scratch. We went to open source, went to uh, emerging research, and we saw that what's available can only do basic things, can only do spelling, grammar. Yes, we can include context. Still, it's quite basic. And to make it work, I wouldn't say basic, probably wrong word, it's mechanical. So mechanics of language. 
if computers can fix mechanics of language, we'll start there because mechanics are important uh, as well. You want to present yourself as professional and it, it also helps understanding. So that's where we started. So we will move on to things like clarity, tone, um, understanding your audience, accomplishing goals, effectiveness of communication and so on. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your go-to-market strategy. How did you think about attracting customers, bringing them in, keeping them? Tell me a little bit more about how you thought about making people aware of Grammarly. It's a well-known approach where you pick a smaller audience for which your product works really, really well. Make it work better for them. Figure out how to make this audience financially sustainable for your business, so profitable uh, with positive unit economics. While you're doing that, also build the product for bigger audience, wider audience. The first iteration of product was uh, targeting professional writers and students and researchers. So essentially people who write for a living and for whom writing is very high stakes. Publishing a book, publishing a research paper, that's kind of where we started. And the main reason for that was that, well, initially the processing was so slow that basically you just write something, you hit check, and then you go have a cup of coffee while it's checking. So obviously it wouldn't work for busy salespeople sending emails, but it worked for somebody who wrote a book and wants to make sure that their book is perfect. So that was our initial target audience. I want to talk a little bit about your customer segmentation. So how did you really hone those early customer types? We used two principles. One is we're looking for areas where we can create the most value. So given where the technology is now, given where our product is now, for what group of people we can create the most value. Then we overlap that group with people we can target, people we can find in, in large enough numbers. Because you can be very valuable, but if you just need to be sniping in one by one, that's not going to work. That's not going to scale. Uh, so, but overlapping ability to find people, uh, find potential users and uh, maximum possible value creation for these users. That that was our kind of process of uh, uh, finding uh, early segments and then expanding those segments over time. What year would you say that you really understood your go-to-market playbook and you really knew how to build the customer base? When do you really feel like you as the as the founder felt true conviction on you knew how to build the audience? It's never done. The audience is always increasing, expanding, changing. Our first kind of aha, we know how to do this and we know how to do this profitably was very early. It was, I think, in um, late 2009 when we figured out how to find and attract researchers, professional writers, and, and uh, students. So we found how, and, and faculty, uh, how to attract these, uh, these people in a way that finding them costs much, much less than uh, they bring us over their lifetime. So basically cost of acquisition versus uh, lifetime value. Once we figured it out that basically we have this machine that produces large number of users that then fund the business, and this loop is going and going, that, that was the first aha moment, but it was very early on, but it was for a very small audience. It was just for the for people who write for a living, basically. Then, like, what's next? Well, next is busy professionals for whom 
communication is part of their work, significant, very significant part of their work, but they don't see themselves as writers. They don't see themselves as professional authors. Uh, they don't publish their work necessarily. Uh, and that was quite a bit difficult because it's a more fragmented, more much broader audience, more diverse audience. So we didn't feel like we nailed it for a while. The second big, I think, big aha moment for us was freemium. And we moved to freemium model when we realized that well, people are going to upgrade to premium product when they have something important to write or something important to say or big project they're working on or new environment they're on where they kind of actively look for help with, with more effective communication. So basically something needs to happen in their life. And how can we be there at that moment when something important happens in their life? It dawned on us that, well, if we have a free product that's easy to adopt and there is just no reason not to use it, you just use it because it's there. But then when you really need help, you can upgrade to, to a premium version. That pushed us to freemium model. That, that basically gave us idea to go freemium. And it worked really well. So that was kind of our second, like, wow, we nailed it. But then we realized that, well, more critical communication happens at work. At work, we are usually overwhelmed with uh, incoming messages, outgoing messages, uh, expectations, the diversity of people we need to communicate with. Like when you talk to friends, you know them. When you interact with people at work, in many cases, you're shoved into uh, conversations with complete strangers, uh, people you've never seen before, people you've never talked before, people from other cultures, other backgrounds with other motivations and interests um, and so on. How do you do that? How do you handle all that? So we realized that we have much bigger opportunity to create value and to help uh, with professionals. Plus, in companies, there is a lot of internal knowledge, a lot of best practices, a lot of uh, kind of experiences developed by their existing teams. How do you make sure that it gets through to new team members? For example, you hire somebody and they immediately have this collective memory of the company. It all can be done. But to do that, you need to be adopted as a product on a, on a company level. And that's where we started working on, on B2B because we realized that we can create much more value in the, in the business environment with this awareness of, of company structure. Can you tell us what you've learned about personalization? So many products, so many people listening build personalization into their product. What have you learned about nailing personalization? We're still working on that. That personalization is a very broad and very deep area. I don't see the end to it. Why? Because in communication, personalization is extremely important. You want to sound like yourself. The way you communicate, the way people see you through your emails and text messages is essentially your, your mental portrait they have. You want it to be genuine. You want it to be authentic. So that's, that's kind of a big area of personalization. Another area of personalization is what's important for you in this particular instance. It may be you want to come across as prof uh, professionally and the spelling, grammar, every mechanics of language are extremely important in this case. Or it may be you just want to get your point across. And spelling, grammar don't matter much because well, say you're communicating with somebody you know well, they're not going to judge but you really want to make sure they understand what you're saying. Then the focus is on clarity. Everything else doesn't matter as much. And we need to understand this and we need to tee up suggestions that are actually meaningful for this specific person in this specific instance, this specific use case, and with this specific audience. And that's where personalization is. That it's, so it's not just position things conveniently on your screen. That's important too, but that's just a start. 
the real holy grail of personalization is giving you what's important for you in this specific communication instance. Tell us a little bit about how you leverage machine learning and AI in the early days, and then let's talk a little bit about where you're going with it. Absolutely. AI has played a big role uh, at Grammarly since, uh, since the very beginning. Even though we didn't talk much about AI early on, and one of the reasons we didn't, because expectations in the kind of hype around AI was just too big for what AI could do at the time. We knew that it won't work. The technology just wasn't there. So we kind of stayed away from including AI in our branding, positioning, messaging. And to common person, it wasn't interesting at the time. It wasn't, it wasn't like a selling point or, or something that nobody would just look, oh, I want AI in my product. But we use AI from uh, pretty much very beginning. We use it for specific tasks, starting very kind of small, very granularly where we could use it reliably enough. So one of the early things we used with uh, AI is just sounding natural. When you implement grammatical rules and patterns and punctuation in a computer, you can do it with pattern matching, essentially, because rules of language are fairly well described with patterns. But then when you go to sounding natural, the, the patterns start to break. There is no like really written rule in most of the like grammar books about that. And that's where AI for, worked really well from the very beginning, like detecting these things that sound wrong. You don't know even why, but it just sounds odd. And uh, we use the AI for that. Then we use the AI for contextual spelling, contextual synonym suggestion, and so on. Very specific tasks where it could deliver results predictably and reliably. Because one of the weaknesses of AI is predictability and reliability. Just being able to say that, yes, it's going to deliver results you expect in 99.9% .9 of cases. And that's what it takes to make a practical product. It was very easy early on to make a toy with AI or to make some kind of curiosity product where it does something magical, but it only works like one third of the time. For Grammarly, for product that people rely on every day, we couldn't do that. We had to be 99% uh, predictable and effective. That very much narrowed where we could use AI early on. Can you talk a little bit about the predictions that are really obvious to you about AI and written speech and where the world is heading, what's going to be possible. Where's the world heading? What's obvious to you, Max? I think AI is going to help improve productivity in a lot of spaces, uh, a lot of places. One big area where it helps is organization of knowledge, essentially being able to extract useful information, useful signal from things you've heard, things you read, things you said, and so on. So AI is really good at that. Another area where AI is, is going to be very helpful is transforming information from one form into another. AI is really good at this right now. Like without losing a meaning, without uh, actually, without, without uh, distorting it, it can do much of that work for you quite well. And it's just one example. There are many other examples where like you wrote a document for internal audience who know all the lingo and all what the code names and whatever me means, but then you want an average person to be able to understand that. Again, AI can expand it for you, including context, including the uh, additional information, dial up level of detail in areas that wouldn't be commonly understood uh, by, by an average person. So that uh, transforming information from one form to another, from one audience to another, adapting it, I think it's going to be really powerful. Another thing is understanding you as a user and understanding what's important for you in this moment. 
going back to Grammarly's suggestions, in some instances, you may need clarity and focus on clarity. In some instances, you need actually maybe a, a bit more sensitivity. Let's say you're writing a performance review and you you realize that, well, the way you wrote it, it's just going to make somebody feel bad, but they're not going to be able to improve based on that information. Maybe you can transform it in something that's kind of a less intense or more approachable for somebody, and they can actually use this information to, to make an improvement. That's kind of understanding your goals and understanding what's important in this specific use case and what best practice in each particular communication instance is. Uh, I think that's another thing is where AI is uh, going to uh, help tremendously. Max, on the flip side, where do you think AI will hit roadblocks or challenges over the next five to 10 years? Privacy. Privacy and ownership of information. When you train AI, somebody created this information. Somebody may feel that they own it and may actually own it. You need to respect that. Also, AI works better the more it knows about you, about your goals, about your organization. But to give this knowledge to AI, you need to have full trust. If you have trust, you need to be sure that your privacy is respected and, and protected. These things are the, the things that AI industry will need to, I wouldn't say solve, because uh, I think it's the progress there can go for a really long time and is possibly endless, but needs to pay a lot of attention, make a lot of investment in. If you can't ensure that information ownership is respected, privacy is respected, and everything's protected well, AI is just going to face resistance from, from people who need to adopt it. Is there anything else that feels very, very obvious? Any other big sort of innovation coming that may be very clear to you is going to be an innovation coming? I'll point it back to AI. I think AI is quite a bit like electricity when it emerged initially. It's kind of a curiosity, kind of a toy, kind of enabler in some cases. But eventually it makes so much difference over time without people even noticing and replaces so many things and, and uh, enhances so many things. And this is just going to keep going, going for, for decades. So that's, I think we should be ready for that. We should be preparing for that. We should be cautious in some ways, but uh, I don't think there is a reason uh, to, to be scared. It's all manageable. It happened in history many times before. Now, with that knowledge, we are in a position to handle it better this time. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. You grew up in Ukraine. When did you come to the United States? What was that like? Obviously, with everything going on in the Ukraine, how has that impacted or helped shape who you are today? As somebody who's built a $13 billion plus company, incredible success, again, 30 million plus users. Tell us a little bit about, about that part of your life. I came first came to the United States uh, back in 2002. I was already an entrepreneur, a uh, tech entrepreneur at the time. I came for, for an MBA program. One of the bigger, like immediate experience and immediate uh, kind of revelation to me was that people in the US are pretty much the same. Growing up in Ukraine, it always seemed that they can do something I can't. They know something I don't. When I came to the US, saw my peers, could talk to customers in, in a more direct way, basically in person, I realized that, well, not much difference. And that realization was really important for me because step two of that realization was, well, I can do everything they can do. I always love to ask the question, but is there something from your childhood that you greatly attribute to your ability to be this successful? 
one thing made uh, me an entrepreneur, quite poor economic situation in Ukraine when I was uh, thinking about, started thinking about my future career. When I finished high school and went to college uh, back in Ukraine, I could make maybe $200, $300 a month as a computer programmer. Very small money. Even in Ukraine, it wasn't a lot of money. Doing the same thing through internet with Western clients, I could triple, quadruple that. And uh, just that realization cemented my uh, desire to become an entrepreneur, to just work for myself uh, rather than look for employment. And then it just went from there. This is the second company that you founded with your co-founder, Alex. What has made that partnership so effective? And for people out there thinking about partnering with a friend or partnering with someone, what advice would you have? One thing that made the partnership effective was simplicity of relationship. We didn't focus on like who does what, who owns what. Basically, everybody, like from the outset, our, I don't even remember, spoken or unspoken agreement was that everyone does what they're good at and we split everything 50-50. That was kind of a, the way we handled it. And the simplicity of that made the relationship much easier, much more effective. We didn't bog down ourselves in, in discussing responsibilities, titles, and everything. That, that just kind of fell to the side. Also focused on moving forward uh, rather than discussing our, our shares or relationships or anything like that. So, so basically common goal, common orientation, and, and less focus on, on the minutia of, of just working together. I think that, that was really uh, helpful. Also, I think growth solves all not all problems, but many problems. If a business is growing, it's very easy to focus on the right thing, which means growing it even more, rather than get distracted by things that are actually not that important. And we were fortunate to find ideas that had good potential for growth and execute them in a way that can make continued progress. Another thing that helped us quite a lot that is one of the main benefits of having a, a co-founder or, or a partner. Inevitably, your level of energy and your level of dedication has ups and downs. We kind of didn't use these ups and downs in a, in a competitive way against each other. So when one has like a low energy state, the other one just steps in to pull the whole thing forward a bit more and vice versa. You've done so much impressive work to help stabilize your team during the war, and you've committed $5 million to funding organizations in the Ukraine. Can you just talk a little bit about what this moment in history has been like for you? I want to say that war has been going on since uh, 2014. So the full-scale invasion was a uh, change. For us, it's not new. The war has been going on for nine years now. Uh, yeah. yeah. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, but... It also helped everybody to be a bit more prepared for that, uh, a bit more, a bit less shocked, a bit more resilient. And our team has been tremendously resilient. Um, yeah, it's difficult to talk about this. Uh, sorry. Um, but it, it touched me and, and our team in, in many ways. Max, no, th th thank you. I mean, I think it's easy to just move through life every day and sort of forget about all of the things happening on the planet. So thank you for just making this such an important reminder. You know, here in America, we have a lot of stability that sometimes I think we take for granted. I've just, I, from afar, have been very, very impressed by you personally and um, what you've been doing to continue to kind of pay back 
your roots. And so thank you. Last question I wanted to ask, which actually is really a good one on the heels of this, which is running a company is really stressful. I would love to know what your coping mechanisms are. What have you adopted personally, Max? How do you manage through it all? I don't think I'm doing a good job there myself, just being honest. Um, <laughs> I am a bit obsessive. Uh, so when I start working on something, it's hard for me to stop. And uh, often I stop because just I physically have to. Not the healthiest approach. But at the same time, I optimize everything to make it possible. To make it possible for me to, when I'm inspired or obsessed, depending on perspective, I can keep going for a long time without losing my house and losing my relationships and so on. For example, good sleep, good diet, exercise, good relationships with family and friends. I think that, that's just a must. That enables you to be really effective when you need to be. And uh, one common mistake I see, and I, I'm, I'm confident it's a mistake, uh, I see with entrepreneurs is kind of trying to be heroes. I don't know, waking up at 5 a.m. when there is no need to, and they went to bed at 1, but they still wake up early because they feel like, oh, this is going to, like, this is what strong people do. Yeah, this is what strong people do, because, uh, but they don't do it for no reason. They do it when they really need to do it, maybe once in a while. If you do it every day, you're just going to not be able to run this marathon. marathon. Uh, so my kind of personal approach is be able, be ready to do hard things, but when it's not necessary, make everything as easy and efficient as possible. So save energy for when it's really needed. Like it really crystallized in my mind uh, from, from sports. Uh, like athletes, they do really tremendous things in, in their sports. But then to be able to do that, to be competitive, they make everything else super easy. They don't waste energy. They don't deal with inconveniences and so on. They, they fix it beforehand so that when it comes time to compete, they can dedicate 100% of their energy to that. That's my approach to work. I make everything as easy, as simple as possible so that I can perform at my best when, when I need to. Max, I'm going to move to the quickfire round. I'm going to ask you a question. First answer that comes to mind. Let's go. Uh, what is your favorite interview question to ask somebody that you're considering hiring? How do you learn? What is a book of any kind that's changed your life or had a huge impact in your life that you recommend? Hmm. It's hard to say because I borrow bits and pieces from everywhere. Uh, quick anecdote. I once had a, a, a team member, a long time ago, years, many years ago, I had a team member uh, who left the company. And uh, in the exit interview, I asked why you're leaving. And he said, well, at Grammarly, there is no person right now who can be better than me in everything and be my mentor. And I was like, well, this is completely wrong perspective because to learn from somebody, you don't need to find a person who's better than you in everything. They can just do one tiny thing better and you can already learn from them about this particular thing. So, and that's, that's been my philosophy with everything. I learn from everybody. I learn from everything. Any book, even if I don't like the book, even if it's a bad, poorly written book, uh, you can learn from it. Maybe even learn from its mistakes or things that it, that the author doesn't understand. And you can think, oh, why? Why they went on this wrong line of reasoning? Are there other people who think like that? So you can learn from everything. What gets you out of bed every day, Max? Hmm. Uh, excitement of what's next. Uh, again, things change so fast. Many new interesting things happen. And uh, 
I'm always excited to see what's gonna like what's gonna happen next. It's you know like playing exciting game uh like a video game where you are excited about next level because it's going to be a surprise and what challenges it brings what interesting story it brings and that's that's basically like that's how i view every day what is your biggest pinch me moment to date at grammarly it may not be the biggest one it's hard to say what's the biggest one but the most recent one was uh, uh we had a quarterly uh, business review meeting I looked at the team in the in the in the room. It was probably like thirty or forty people, uh, leaders of different functions, and I realized that most people in that room were like, if I looked at them ten years ago, they would be celebrities to me. Uh, I would I would be like a groupie. Uh, I would uh, I would read everything they read. I would follow them obsessively and so on. I want to be like them. And now there is like a few dozen of such people working in my company. It was just a mind blowing. Last question is, other than something that touches Grammarly, so future of AI, is there another category of innovation that you're really fascinated by right now? I'm still a strong believer in uh, things like green technologies. I think we, we, it's totally doable to, uh, to decarbonize uh, our world and uh, have infinite energy. Uh, I think we can do it. Uh, I'm still a strong believer in uh, uh, self-driving uh, and, and, and autonomous transportation, autonomous uh, um, uh, just uh, kind of uh, many autonomous machines. Um, I, I think that this is where the world is going and it's, uh, it's going to be very, it's going to have a very positive impact on the economy. The number of things I'm, I'm very passionate about. I love that. Everybody out there, first of all, if you want to learn more, check out Grammarly.com. And Max, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, You're a real inspiration. You're an inspiration to me. And uh, I'm just excited to see what you will continue to build and where you will go. And it's clear it will be incredible. Um, So we're all rooting for you. Thank you so much. And everybody out there, you can join us next week for Ink the Founders Project with Alexa Von Thank you so much, Max. We're rooting for you. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Alexa. understands that one size doesn't fit all. Each emerging growth company has its own unique needs and issues at different stages of growth. As your startup grows, Deloitte aligns its approach to adapt to that growth. Quality is their top priority. Their approach to client services focus on the priorities and challenges of high growth companies, the road to IPO, and a commitment to the venture capital community. From startup to IPO and beyond, Deloitte is here to help. See how at Deloitte.com forward slash US forward slash EGC. That's Deloitte.com, D-E-L-O-I-T-T-E.com forward slash U-S forward slash E-G-C.